0: This is the WA Country Hour with Jo Prendergast on ABC Radio WA.
1: Good afternoon. Happy Thursday to you. An Auditor-General's report on the regulation of WA's commercial fishing industry has raised serious ongoing concerns about the Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development and its fisheries offices. In her report, Auditor-General Caroline Spencer raised some concerns. We'll hear more about that on the Country Hour today. And we'll meet Jared Miller. He's a dairy farmer based near Bridgetown and he has muscular dystrophy but it doesn't stop him living and working in agriculture. Share Jared's story today. And the WA government and a port in the Netherlands is hatching a plan to export sunshine and wind from WA to Europe. How and why? I'll tell you more soon. And if you're hearing me today, you're listening on some sort of digital device. And I know that because there's no Country Hour on the wireless today due to the cricket being on. So welcome to this digital realm only program. I'd love it if you could tell me where it is that you're listening from. Be keen to know because it's not on, on the wireless as we're used to. It's just on the digital streaming or on the ABC Listen app. Send me a text. The number is zero double 448 922604. And as was predicted by the Bureau of Meteorology, there was some storm activity across parts of the South West Land Division late yesterday and last night. It was a particularly eventful night for Lee Strange at Bruce Rock, which is about 250 kilometres east of Perth. Lots of lightning, five fires plus hail.
2: Yeah, we had a uh, a thunderstorm come through, a bit of an unexpected one, actually, and um, came down from the northwest as usual. But, yeah, obviously everyone was harvesting and a typical, you know, summer storm. But the lightning was very aggressive. I think there was five fires sort of around our place or the neighbours, probably all within seven or eight kilometres. So everyone sort of scrambled um, to, to get to those one house got the direct hit so that was a bit of a concern but then yeah we managed to uh, obviously it rained and then the guys that got to the fires managed to get them out pretty quick which was great.
3: So is everyone okay from the fires?
2: Yeah 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 no they weren't serious fires at all um the say it's sort of par for the course during summer to get those storms um, but yeah we uh, people are pretty good you know to be able to just scramble and Get on top of them quick, which is great. The rain helped. That put probably most of them out, uh, except for where it was in some bush, some trees. Um, They're still smouldering a bit this morning, so we're just out there now. Just putting a bit of water on them and hoping that the wind doesn't get up too much today.
3: Is there any damage from the fires?
2: Uh, Not particularly, just small areas uh, where the lightning came down, struck and ignited and then uh, starts burning and then luckily... Well, luckily for the fire side of it, we had rain. The storms were quite intense. When the rain fell, areas had some hail in that. There was some quite serious hail for some farmers just to the east of us, a farm or two over, and we had some sort of moderate hail at our place. I haven't heard too many other reports around the joint at this point this morning.
3: Yeah, so the hail you think might have damaged some of your neighbours' crops?
2: I think where the hail was uh, probably heavier than normal, it would have, definitely. You know, on the lighter side, the crop was already wet so it tends to hang on a bit better once once the crop's wet but there will definitely be damage around the joint from the hail for sure.
3: How quick was everyone to come together and eradicate these fires?
2: Yeah, very quick. Yeah, look, we're following the fires obviously uh, in Bruce Rock back in February. You know, the silver lining from that, if there is one, is that people's preparedness is very good. Um, We've done a lot of work around here on our communications so as soon as there's a fire through whatsapp there's a you know a location pin drop and people just go uh, they've spent money on their own equipment and um and our local volleys are very good as well to get the the uh, fire trucks out there as well so you know if there is like i say any sort of silver lining out of february it's the fact that we're pretty pretty prepared and and you know um, quick in action uh, with some reasonable gear
3: how is everything looking this morning after the fires and the storm?
2: Yeah, look, everything's, uh, everything's all right. It's, everything's very damp at the moment, but i have just in the bush now where we had a lightning strike and there's, you know, some uh, branches from dead de- jam trees just getting going again, so we've just put a water on them and I've put a fire break around it with our loader and we will just uh, obviously keep an eye on things throughout the day today as this wind is cranking up a little bit now. Um, I think where it was in the crop or stubble, it would be fine. Uh, it would definitely be out there, but some, it'll just be anything that's a bit heavier, that's still smouldering.
3: How much will what happened last night impact harvest?
2: Oh, not a great deal. Um, I think, you know, it's pretty blowy, so it'll dry out fairly quick. You know, I'd imagine early afternoon we'd probably have a go to, to see what, what the moisture's like, so it's pretty windy, um, yeah, yeah, look, if we get harvesting, great. If we don't and the weather's too bad, well, so be it. It's just too too dangerous. There's always tomorrow we'll, we'll get it done.
1: Bruce Rock Farmer Lee Strange talking to Sophie Johnson about the five fires and hail in his region last night. Those storms went through WA's Lower West, South West, and Great Southern districts, and hail was also reported at Dowran last night. It does sound like it was a pretty narrow strip. Ashley Jones has a farm right near town, right near Dowran, and he hasn't been home yet. He'd been at another property this morning, so he hadn't had a chance to go and inspect that damage. But one of the people he works with thought that the odd grain might have been knocked out of the head, so fingers crossed that uh, that damage isn't too much at your place ash and ash did uh tell lucinda when they were chatting this morning that harvest has been pretty slow but the yields are exceptional so that's good news out of darren i've been asking where it is you're listening from today because we're digital only we're not on the wireless because of the cricket so it's an online only program people and a text in from Joe. He's listening to the country hour via Bluetooth earmuffs. earmuffs. Sorry, earmuffs, next to a seed cleaner at Coomberdale. Hello, Joe. Thank you for your text. I really appreciate that. If you're wondering where Coomberdale is, it's a small town located along the Midlands Road between Mora and and Watharo in the wheatbelt region and a pretty part of the world it is too. I hope you're enjoying your time on the seed cleaner today, Joe. Thank you for your text. It's coming up to 13 past 12. You are listening to the Country Hour WA's Auditor-General has released a pretty damning report into the Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development and its fisheries staff in regulating the state's commercial fishing industry. In her report, Auditor-General Caroline Spencer says DPIRD's compliance and enforcement work in the commercial sector is only partially effective, and that increases the risk of illegal fishing
4: by commercial fishers. Look, there are very dedicated professional fisheries and marine officers that work for the department, and many of them are doing fantastic job day in, day out. But in terms of targeting you know, the highest risk areas in a really strategic way, those risks that are of highest impact to protecting our fish, fishery resources, um, there really isn't that overall um, strategic, systemic, risk-based approach. And making sure that planned activities are actually conducted and then knowing the effectiveness of those planned activities. And what we found is that um, fisheries officers uh, will set out for a day and sometimes uh, get a little distracted on what they see in front of them rather than targeting the planned risk that they were actually setting out to to monitor. And so we see that systems and processes and and technology with the department uh, isn't robust and what we um, uh, expected and we also saw that management reporting was not what we expected to inform their understanding of the effectiveness of the risks.
1: The other risk flagged in the Auditor-General's report on DPIRD's work in the commercial fishing industry was conflict of interest.
4: There are local fisheries officers on the ground that, that will live in a community, um, send their kids to school uh, with um, commercial fishers' kids, and, and that can lead to a risk of overfamiliarity. And so making sure that that risk is acknowledged, making sure it's appropriately managed through rotations and other things that um, you know, other law enforcement and regulatory agencies need to do is important. An auditor-general Caroline Spencer says the department
1: itself faces conflicting roles, as it promotes the industry and also regulates it. And she says data management systems are old, with some systems still being paper-based. But she also says some of these issues that the report
4: has raised are not new. So my office looked at the regulation of fishing 13 years ago and we found that some of the systems and processes are not using uh, good information for informed regulatory decision-making is still occurring and that's really disappointing. Auditor
1: General Caroline Spencer outlining her concerns following a report on DeepHerd and its regulation of WA's commercial fishing industry. Bruno Mezzatesta is DeepHerd's Acting Deputy Director General of Sustainability and Biosecurity. Bruno, one of the big concerns in this report is that DeepHerd doesn't work strategically to target activities that are, are the greatest risk to fisheries, and that then increases the risk of illegal activity. Do you accept that finding?
5: We worked with the Auditor General through the process of this report being developed and and we certainly accept that we have areas for improvement. We we do conduct risk assessments but the Auditor General quite rightly pointed out that sometimes we don't take all the inputs that we should in in a formal way and we'll certainly be moving to improve what is already a very good process we think to actually embrace the process of continuous improvement
1: these aren't new concerns this was raised in a similar report from 2009 and we heard caroline spencer say that she was disappointed that what she called informed decision making was still not happening so what improvements are you now going to make
5: Okay, I I might actually reflect on that comment initially if I can. Mm. Certainly our operating arrangements in 2009 are quite different to the operating arrangements we have. Now in 2009, the focus was on the six major commercial fisheries who were contributing towards cost of management under a direct cost recovery arrangement. Since that time, we've moved to a situation where commercial fishers pay a percentage of their catch basically to the agency and the agency then determines where the uh, agency activity is allocated on a priority basis. So we we are operating in in slightly different environments. We accept though that, that our processes can improve. We have highly trained, specifically recruited officers and we take their knowledge of local situations and we apply our resources based on their knowledge of local situations. We have made some changes around the systems, which was a a criticism of the Auditor General back in 2009. We certainly have our largest fishery, the Western Rock Lobster Fishery, providing us their uh, nominations and catch returns electronically. I think uh, the last time I looked, the number of fishers reporting electronically were 80%. But I accept the Auditor General's recommendation that we need to get that sort of efficiency across the broader commercial fisheries sector.
1: It's not complimentary, is it? She's she says that there's no strategy to ensure that the biggest threats are targeted. So from this point, and I, I appreciate you've just reflected on improvements you've made since 2009, but from this point, where do you see as the, the biggest areas of improvement that you can make?
5: Well, what we'll do is we'll take our existing risk assessment process. So when when we allocate compliance processes, we go through a risk assessment process. And what we'll do is we'll start documenting those various bits of information that the Auditor-General has recommended we include in that assessment process. We're reasonably comfortable with where we're at now, but we're happy to add those additional elements. For example, she suggested any intelligence that we Collect should be fed formally into those processes, and, and we accept that recommendation.
1: So, is there a gap between data that is collected and data that's used to inform enforcement activities? Is that does that gap exist at the moment?
5: I, I wouldn't say it's a gap. I would say it's not formalised. I think, I think what I'm getting from the report is that our processes need to be improved to make them form more more formal and actually implement some reporting processes. And I think that's what we'll be working on. We'll be working closely on making sure that those things are embedded into into our business planning and business execution processes.
1: Why are some processes that uh, fisheries officers do still paper-based? It's 2022. Can you explain that for us?
5: Um, I think what's happening at the moment is we have a variation in the commercial fisheries we've got around the state so some of them are quite large and have big numbers of transactions and electronic processing is the way to go with those fisheries we didn't have the same the incentive to actually drive those smaller fisheries with a small number of operators and a small number of transactions into that space but it's certainly a direction we are going to head across the entirety of our, our data collection processes in, in all commercial
6: fisheries.
1: Conflict of interest is another point that's raised and it's a concern in the report where fisheries officers live and work in small fishing-dominated communities. How do you manage that risk at the moment?
5: It, it is a, a bit of a challenge and, and it's a bit of a, a, a balancing act because we do want our fisheries officers living and being part of communities mm because I think there are lots of positives that come out of that process. So we don't have a forced transfer policy, which is what some uh, regulators implement. We, we don't want to be saying to a family that's established in a particular location, you need to pack up and move because there, there's a risk that we lose good staff. So we have a what I would call a natural transfer happening or renewal happening because we do lose people and people do transfer around the state. So without having a forced transfer policy, we do actually get some movement. But we also have situations where there'll be officers from, for example, the metropolitan region may move north and do some work in the north or people from the Midwest coming out and helping in, in the metro area. So there's there's a little bit of balance, but we accept, we, again, accept the Auditor-General's recommendations that we need to actually be very clear about what processes we are going to put in place to make sure that that becomes front of mind in in our activities and that we have a clear awareness of the risk of industry capture. I think think that's what the Auditor-General is saying. I don't think she identified actual examples, but she's saying that there is a risk if you have people living in the same regional location for, for an extended period of time.
1: Bruno Mezzatesta, he's DPIRD's Acting Deputy Director-General of Sustainability and Biosecurity. You can read more about that story online, that report into DPIRD and its fisheries offices and their work um, monitoring and doing enforcement activities around WA's commercial fishing industry. 23 past 12, how do you get wind and sunlight from Western Australia's Midwest to power factories, homes and transport systems in Europe. The state government, the German government and the port of Rotterdam in the Netherlands are about to put their heads together and try and figure out the answer to that question. The port of Rotterdam is pretty interesting. It's the largest port in Europe And it's often described as the fuel station of the continent. But most of that fuel is currently fossil-based, which is something that the port wants to change. Program Manager of International Hydrogen Supplies at the Port of Rotterdam, Martijn Koopman, says green hydrogen from the Midwest could be an important piece in their journey going green.
6: Yeah, so effectively, what we came up with in our work on uh, how to transform our port is that we're going to need a lot of hydrogen. Um, uh, We we foresee a demand of about 20 million tons of hydrogen. The unfortunate thing is if we do an analysis on how much windmills we can place in the Dutch North Sea and and energy we can produce, we come to the conclusion that we can only produce about 10% locally. So we need to import a lot of this, this new green energy from overseas. We've been looking working in the last two years identifying where that green energy might come from, in what form, and, and who are reliable partners, particularly in this current day. Reliability of partnerships is, is important. And we've come to the conclusion that Australia, and particularly the Geraldton area, is probably one of the best locations in the world. It has a lot of space. It has It seems uh, um, a willing population, willing to participate in in producing large volumes of of new energy. It's got fantastic sun and wind conditions uh, and, of course, being part of Australia, great investment climate as well. And so that's that's one of the reasons that we've been reaching out. We've been working with the WA government already for almost a year. And the WA government uh, has come to us. With their plans for Okage, uh, and asked us if we could support them with that, and we've, we've, yeah, we said yes to that.
7: The hydrogen that will be produced at Okage, w- what will it be eventually used for? So the
6: important thing is that we are where we're coming from is that we want to be part of a global solution um, to stop climate change, uh, and so. Uh, what's important for us is that uh, uh, the green hydrogen, green power and the green hydrogen produced in the Okogee Midwest region is first and foremost used uh, for the, the energy transition and decarbonization of West Australia first. Uh, and that's what we very much believe should always be the priority. If then there is a surplus of green energy and green hydrogen, and we believe that it has phenomenal potential, then and and that surplus is is potentially allocated for for exports then we would be super keen to explore and, and and assist in in making those exports to europe a possibility the funny thing is that our studies have shown that the variable shipping cost component of the end price of hydrogen is only a few percentage uh, so that means that actually shipping hydrogen from australia all the way to europe is very well feasible and and also Australian hydrogen can easily compete with hydrogen from other parts of the world but what's most important is that particularly in in 10 to 20 years from now we'll see in the world there's not enough spaces with enough uh, windmill uh, capacity and there will be actually a shortage of hydrogen and this is why we really believe that uh, West Australian hydrogen um, is definitely also going to be part of the energy mix in, in Europe and we're trying to facilitate that by developing the necessary infrastructure to get these new flows going.
7: It does sound extraordinary that it would be economical to, to transport it across the world. How is hydrogen transported?
6: So hydrogen is actually not a very easy molecule to store and to transport. Um, it's the most abundant uh, element on Earth, but also the lightest and therefore the easiest, the hardest to put into a container. Um, and what is done and what likely will be done is the hydrogen will be transformed into ammonia. So it, will, it will be reacted with uh, with nitrogen from the air. And ammonia is a product that has been shipped already for 30 to 40 years around the world in a very safe manner. It's got one of the highest safety records in the world. And that ammonia then, in the port of Rotterdam, will we received, and either used as ammonia or chemically cracked back into hydrogen and nitrogen, and that hydrogen then used for all sorts of applications in Europe.
7: You're at the hydrogen conference in Perth currently, um, and this week our state hydrogen minister Alana McTiernan said that Western Australia is on the cusp of becoming a global green energy superpower. Do do
6: you agree? Absolutely. One hundred percent. That's exactly why I'm here. Um, And uh, one of the great advantages of of West Australia is that you have already that experience of of large scale energy exports, uh, albeit, of course, fossil energy in the past. uh, But also thanks to the phenomenal sun and wind conditions and the ample space, uh, it's it's also absolute definite that WA is going to be a unique exporting champion in the world of this new green, green energy form. Which is so interesting
7: because we complain mercilessly about the wind and the sun
6: here in WA. (laughs) Yeah, no, you're going to have to love it. I love it. It's fantastic. It's energy.
1: I was whinging about the wind the other day, wasn't I? That's Program Manager of International Hydrogen Supply Chains at the Port of Rotterdam, Martijn Koopman, speaking with Lucinda Jose. And Martijn is in Perth at the moment for the Australian Hydrogen Conference. It finished up yesterday and some pretty interesting discussions coming out of that conference and some big money being spent. That study of how to get power from WA to Europe is worth about $2 million. We'll head to the newsroom in just a moment. Um, it would be great, though, if you could tell me where it is you're listening from. It's digital only today, so no program on the wireless because of the cricket. Please prove to me that Earmuffs Joe at Coomberdale isn't our only listener today, not that we don't value you, Joe, we do, but hopefully there's more than just you listening. The text number is zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Send me a text, let me know where it is that you're listening from. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Brianna Shepard is listening. She's in the, in the newsroom now. Hi, Brianna. Hello.
8: Homicide detectives have upgraded the charge against a teenager in relation to the death of a pregnant woman in a Perth shopping centre car park. Diane Miller died in hospital last Friday after she was allegedly struck in the head by a piece of concrete while sitting in her car at Waterford Shopping Centre in Karawara in Perth South. The 17-year-old boy from Kensington was charged with grievous bodily harm, which has since been upgraded to one count of murder. Federal Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek has announced plans to introduce sweeping changes to Australia's environment laws. As part of the new plan, the government is looking to introduce national standards to protect the environment and an independent environmental protection agency. And British opposition parties and environmental campaigners have bitterly criticised the government's decision to approve plans for the UK's first new coal mine in 30 years. Critics say the project would undermine the country's transition to a greener economy, but the British government says the mine's effect on carbon emissions would be insignificant. More news on the hour.
1: Brianna, thank you. I appreciate that. And just taking a look now at what the weather will do for the next few days. Luke Huntington is at the Bureau. Hi, Luke.
9: Dude, how are you going?
1: Oh, I'm pretty good, thank you. How's the weather looking? There was a bit of lightning and hail and all that sort of stuff around yesterday.
9: Yeah, last night, um, sort of a big um, swathe of the the southwest corner um, got some uh, thunderstorms. So um, around the Perth area, it was just to the southern suburbs and um, through parts of uh, the Great Southern and down to the south coast near Albany. Um, So all that thunderstorm activity is now over eastern parts of the Southwest Land Division, so around the Esperance area and um, extending east into the um, Euclid and Southern Goldfields. But for the Southwest Land Division, for the remainder of today, um, we do have a continuation of thunderstorms over that southeast coastal district, so around the um, inland parts of the Esperance area. Um, just a surface trough there could trigger some further storms this afternoon, but those storms will be fairly high based and not produce much rainfall. And then elsewhere at the southwest land division, it's relatively clear. we just have a little bit of cloud along the uh, west coastal areas. And heading into tomorrow, um, we do see a weak cold front brushing the southwest corner, probably during the afternoon period. So there'll be an increase in some light showers um, through probably southwest of Bustleton to Albany there during the afternoon period. Not really too much in it about one to three millimetres or so by the end of the day and uh, that sort of rainfall uh, continues towards uh, pretty much Perth to Esperance on Saturday uh, morning probably clearing around um, the Perth area sort of uh, during the morning period and then that'll probably linger around the Esperance region into the afternoon period but there is a high pressure system coming in quickly behind it um, over southern parts of the state so it'll clear the showers out by the time we get to Sunday and we're not going for any precipitation over the southwest land division but um, as that ridge develops to the south we will see um, the easterly winds start to pick up particularly over northern parts of the southwest land division and along the Darling Scarp as well and then heading into Monday similar conditions the ridge just dominates the weather we'll have um, fresh and gusty easterly winds over the uh, over the morning period and it'll be particularly cool over the um, south coast so over the weekend, we're only going for temperatures in the high teens um, in those far southern districts, so it's not going to be particularly warm. But over the um, central west district, we're going for temperatures in the high 20s into the low 30s, but no really, no real extreme heat to, um, to speak of over the next few days.
1: Just enough to hold up the harvesters by the sound of it. That rain that's coming from Bustleton to Albany, Luke, how annoying. Summer's just not turning up, is it?
9: No, not, I'm not sure how those thunderstorms did affect those uh, farmers um, that went through this morning because there were some reports of hail around mm. Perth. So I'm just wondering if they did get some uh, hail down there as well. But so that'd be good to know if they if they did affect them. Um, yeah, yes, yeah.
1: some hail and some fires around Bruce Rock as well. So fingers crossed that's the the worst of it done. How's the north looking? Is it heating up up there?
9: Yeah, so that's the story up north, so that all that hot air is still uh, stagnating over the Pilbara and the interior and the Kimberley uh, area. Um, we do have thunderstorms forecasts, but over the northern and eastern Kimberley today and then over eastern parts of the interior, but those thunderstorms are not really going to do much in terms of cooling things down because they're not producing uh, much rainfall. Uh, At all, so the hot weather continues. Uh, Temperatures still in the low to mid 40s across a large part there, and over the weekend, uh, those temperatures are going to remain uh, as well. We're still going to have some thunderstorms in a similar area over the Kimberley in the eastern interior, but again, they're not going to have too much rainfall associated with them. Temperatures remaining sort of in the in the low to mid 40s, so we do have that um, heatwave continuing um, extreme over the Pilbara and Kimberley uh, area for the remainder of the weekend. I suppose from Monday, uh, it does look like the storms over the Kimberley do increase, so there is more of a chance of getting some uh, heavier fogs, and that might cool things down uh, over the the Kimberley area. And then beyond that, it looks like um, temperatures further decrease, so probably early next week there is an end in sight for the heatwave.
1: Okay. any warnings for us, Luke?
9: Uh, There's a few warnings. So um, the usual strong wind warning, which we have today around the Esperance and Eucla coasts. And we do have that heatwave warning out. So extreme for the Kimberley, Pilbara and North Interior, and then a severe heatwave for the South Interior. And then lastly, just a fire weather warning uh, for the Burrup and Headland uh, fire weather districts.
1: Luke, thank you so much. Appreciate all of that. I've been asking you where you're listening from uh, this afternoon It's digital only today Because the cricket's on the radio And we've got some lovely text I'll go through them in a moment But if you'd like to let me know Where you're listening from uh, Send me a text The number is 048922604. Just pop your name on that text as well My name's Joe. Let me know your name as well
10: ABC Radio Fire ban information.
0: Yeah, total fire ban is in place right now for the Pilbara region. Only my uh, music person would just uh, you know, kill the music a tiny <laughs> well, bit earlier. That'd be great. One job. <laughs> so in the Bilbo region, this is for Caratha and Port Hedland. So all of today, you're not allowed to light, maintain or use a fire in the open air. You're not allowed to carry out any activity that could start a fire. So that includes open fires for the purpose of cooking, camping or outdoor entertainment. None of that's allowed. No fire pits, bonfires, no hot work, metal work, grinding, welding, gas cutting. None of that is allowed. No off-road activity using a four-wheel drive, quad bike, motorcycle, bobcat or similar vehicle except for agricultural purposes or by business and industry if regulatory conditions are met. Um, if you need more details on total fire bans and conditions, just do a search for DFES, D F E S, and total fire bans, and you should be able to get all of it. And it, just a reminder, because it is still the start of summer, if you do breach a total fire ban, you can be fined up to 25 grand or jailed. For uh, 12 months. But as far as the rainfall goes, yeah, a little bit around, but uh, not so much in the northern and eastern forecast districts in the last uh, yeah, day. In the interior, Lorna Glen topped it with 11 and nowhere else had five or above. But in the southwest land division forecast districts, nothing in the central west, but in the lower west, Ancotel 9, Dwelling Up 10, Huntley 14, Jarradale 5, Mandurah 16, Mount Solis 6. Pinjarra, 11 to 14, Serpentine, 8. Then in the southwest, Collie East, 11, up 5, Harvey, 8, Loguebrook, 14, Mount William, 7. In the southern coastal region, Amalup, 9, Bremer Bay, 17 to 20, Shane Beach, 5, up 10, Esperance, 8 to 10, Gardiner, 10 to 20 mills, Up at the GRDC, 13, Inglebourne, 9, Metlas 16, Mount Howick, 22, Oakmarsh Farm, 12, Ongarup had 10 to 13, Pleasant Valley, 7, Salmon Gums Research Station, 8, Stirlings North, 5, drumroll, I know there's rivalry between North and South, Stirling Uh-oh. South... Six mills, south yeah. one. Tallina Downs, 16. The Duke, 17. Warrajarra, 11. And Wellstead, 14. Then in the central wheat belts, Calgi and Happy Valley, six mills. Tammon and Wongan Hills, both recorded five. And then in the Great Southern region, Badgerbup, 16. Boddington North, 18. Boscobel 13. Cherry Tree, 11. Quartering, 14. Cranham and Darkin, both recorded 10. Dumble young thirteen to seventeen Holtrock rock six Katanning, thirteen to fourteen. Lake King, 5. Maradong topped it for the state with 33. Mount Madden East recorded 5. Nyabings, GRDC, recorded 7. Quail up 9. Tunney, 7. Wajin Airport, 23. Uh, by the way, Jim's listening in Wajin Hey, Jim. There's a test for you, Jay. If you reread Jim's text, then it means you weren't listening properly. Uh, and Williams, 15. And Williams North recorded 16. So just got a, a tiny bit more. Hey, um, Joe, The I don't know if you saw this, but the company that ran a piggery in Western Australia's great southern region a number of years ago uh, has just been fined $700,000 for emitting unreasonable odours, which is quite a significant fine.
1: That's a lot of money. Which company was that?
0: It's GD Pork. So it operated a piggery at Cojanup, and this is for odours that were detected fairly easily i think uh, for the local mm-hmm. residents between 2017 and 2019 so the court proceedings have been going on for a fair while since since then evidently the odours were caused by untreated pig waste in external uncovered tanks and ponds and they were also caused by an open pit where some pig carcasses were deposited so the department of water and environment regulation environmental regulation claims the odour could be smelt up to 10 kilometres away. And I know some people used to say they would have to put the windows up and put the air conditioning on, recycle to when they were driving past that area. But the, the company was charged with 26 counts of unreasonable emission with criminal negligence. And uh, evidently the odours were so bad, residents were saying that to shut the doors and windows to keep the smell out, and the odour even went through their laundry on the on the washing lines and possibly also caused some negative impacts to their health.
1: Richard, wasn't GD Pork the company that was headed by the guy who imported the pig semen in the shampoo bottles? Was that GD?
0: It was, yes. Yeah. So GD Pork Proprietary Limited's director was Torben Sorensen. He was actually jailed for what you're referring to there, importing the semen into Australia in a manner that obviously didn't comply with our biosecurity standards. Mm. But as far as this Oda case is concerned, Torben Sorensen is personally facing charges of criminal negligence as well. And the charges against him are still before the court. Um, On a completely separate matter, I think employers, companies, etc., are going to start to sit up and take notice of just how seriously they need to take Oc Health and Safety laws, which have been strengthened a little bit, A company involved in steel importation and land development has just been fined two hundred and forty grand and ordered to pay another thirty, just over thirty grand in costs, court costs, over an incident in which one of their workers, he was only nineteen, had seven fingers amputated by forklift chains. So the company was PT Supplies Group Proprietary Limited. They pleaded guilty after the fact to failing to provide a safe work environment, and by that failure. Uh, led to the the serious harm to the worker. So let's hope those sorts of things can be prevented in the future anyway.
1: It's a big fine, isn't it, as well? yeah. Yeah. Richard, thank you. Well, dairy farming, it can be a relentless and demanding profession and lifestyle. So imagine doing it with muscular dystrophy. Well, welcome to Jared Miller's world. Jared farms about 20 kilometres north of Bridgetown and he lives with muscular dystrophy. That's a genetic disorder that gradually weakens the muscles, but it doesn't stop Jared doing what he loves.
11: I I was born with it and Mm -hmm. found out when I was about five years old that, yeah, well, that was more that my parents kind of had worked out something wasn't right, they put in a swimming pool on the farm and then as a kid like that's all you want to do is swim in the pool so as I was doing that all the time I would get really bad leg cramps and I would start walking on my tippy toes kind of walk up on my toes and obviously my mum and dad realised that something wasn't right when I kept telling them that my legs were very sore and that was the only comfort I got was walking that way. Um, So obviously yeah they took me to the doctor and yeah they kind of worked out that I'd had some form of muscular dystrophy I had to do um more tests than that and yeah I was diagnosed with Becker's muscular dystrophy so um yeah it's just a muscle deteriorating disease that unfortunately does get worse as I get older so I'm 31 now and in the last year or 2 i I've obviously yeah really noticed uh, a few more changes to my body and that I obviously get a lot of pain with it and, yeah, obviously walk on uneven ground and, yeah, I I lose my footing quite easily, so I do fall a lot.
12: So how has that affected the work that you do?
11: Over the last few years, I'm unable to continually do what I used to be able to do. Um, Yeah, and I just get really sore. Obviously farming works really physical (laughs) work, so... Yeah. It
12: must be frustrating for you at times,
11: is it? Uh, yeah, very frustrating, yeah. Yeah, I, at times I, get, I can get, uh, get quite angry Yeah, about it, just falling over. And, um, yeah, obviously I want to try and do more in farming, but it's just working out how I go about it and that, mm-hmm. how I do it.
12: And um, there is a dairy quite close by to where we are today that you've worked at
11: when yeah, you were younger? S- yeah, since I was, since I was 15. Yeah, that's for um, Kim Gardner. So, yeah, he's been really good oh, since I was 15. So for the last 16 years, he's always finding me work and modifying his tractor tractors and, and the dairy so I'm able to work there. And, yeah, yeah. He's, he's really good. So, Can, can
12: you tell sure. me a little bit more about the modifying that he's done?
11: The modifying we've done is building a platform off one of his bigger tractors So I'm able to get in and out of it because climbing in and out of machinery is, yeah, it's really hard, nearly basically impossible, like, without um, modifications. So, yeah, we've built a platform and then I'm able to pull up next to the cattle ramp and use that to get in and out of the machine, in in and out of the tractor. So, yeah. And And there's a handrail
12: is there as
11: well? A bit of a handrail, yeah. I still do have to watch my footing in that, but I just take it really slow. And, uh, yeah, I'm able to... Yeah, work as long as anyone else, yeah, mm. so.
12: So Kim's made some adjustments on his machinery for you. Have you found that everyone in, you, in your life is pretty helpful with accommodating for uh, you?
11: Yeah, everyone, yeah, all my friends and family uh, would do anything to help me in that, so that's why it's made life a lot easier. But yeah, like Kim, he's made changes over the years to his farm, so I'm able to work there. Uh, Santo Pratico, he's the same at his dairy farm so he asked me if I'd like to come and milk cows for him and I said I'd be happy to I just have to come and look at his dairy to see if it would suit me and when I got there obviously there was really large steps so I kind of was at the point where I had to tell him that I couldn't do it and he said what if we um you know make some changes to his dairy farm or his dairy shed so yeah he put in handrails and steps and yeah so I'm able to work there and yeah. And that's been really good. Yeah, he's, that's another guy that's great to work for and his family's really good as well.
12: Yeah, it <laughs> so, sounds yeah. like you've had a lot of support from the people in your life.
11: Yeah, yeah, I've had heaps, yeah. Yeah, everyone's always out to um, help me and give me a go. Uh, as long as, yeah, and I show that I'm trying and that, which I am. So, yeah, I think people like that. On
12: those days where things are really tough and you're getting pissed off because you're tripping over, what gets you through?
11: Oh, I think what gets me through is I just, um, I don't know, I have pretty strong willpower to keep going. I don't really, yeah, I brush a lot aside, so I kind of just tell myself to keep going, get back up and, uh, yeah, keep going. And I think when people see that, you're trying every day and I think uh, it drives people to want to do more and help you out, be better and that. So, yeah, I guess just keep trying somehow.
1: It's an inspiring story, isn't it? It's Jared Miller. He's a dairy farmer talking to Georgia Hargreaves about what it's like living with muscular dystrophy and also dairy farming. Lots of texts coming through. Thank you. Phil's listening. He's watering some vegetables. Greg's on the header listening in Meriden and um, another person listening on the app with the cricket in the background. That's from Wattle Broom. That's the best of both worlds, isn't it? Thank you. Well, on the Country Hour this week, we heard from an egg producer talking about the impact of the closed railway line between Sydney and Perth on our local supply of eggs. But if you've been in the supermarket lately, you've probably noticed it's not just the egg shelf that's got gaps in it. Curtin University supply chain expert Dr Elizabeth Jackson says the closed rail line will cause delays in bringing a long list of goods into WA. The railway
13: line between Perth and the eastern states, just like the the road um, the the road network between Perth and the eastern states is is an absolute lifeline for all sorts of product that come into the into Western Australia that are not only grown produced and manufactured in the eastern states but also the goods um, the really the really heavy bulk goods that come in from Southeast Asia to Australia's biggest ports in Sydney Melbourne and Brisbane so those um, transport links the road and rail transport links are absolutely essential for us in Western Australia to enjoy the choice of products um, that we've that we've been enjoying you know in the last 20 20 30 years
12: yeah so on the country hour the other day we heard from an egg producer saying it's affecting the supply of eggs in WA but what other products are going to be affected or you know what about people ordering new machinery parts during harvest
13: Oh, absolutely, and you know, while the Port of Fremantle is um, you know, does a great job in bringing parts and big items, you know, uh, machinery parts, machinery itself, construction materials um, into Western Australia, we really do also rely on what comes in from the eastern states. So. Pretty much um, anything that you can think of, and particularly if you walk around the supermarket, uh, supermarket at the moment, where there are um, where there are holes in the shelves, um, these are the products that come from the eastern states. So, products that I've particularly noticed um, in the supermarket have been frozen chips, frozen veg, uh, tomato sauce, um, plant based milks, these sorts of products that are possibly produced in the eastern states um in, in grown and produced in the eastern states but are also shipped over from the eastern states by this rail network so pretty much georgia if you can think of it it, it really comes from the eastern states so
12: we've been told that it's, it'll be another week before this railway line is opened back up again but how long do you think it'll be before things are restocked and back to normal
13: well, this is going to be really interesting because the you know we're we're all getting our households prepared for um, for the break that's coming up. You know whether you're celebrating Christmas or New Year or any of the special dates that are coming up. Uh, you know we're going to be wanting to to, to buy um, more stuff, and more food, and particularly the other thing is about toys coming across from the Eastern States during Christmas. Um, you know Santa's uh, you know Santa Santa's really 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 good, but he also relies on that um, of (laughs) that rail link as well um so it's it's gonna it's a really interesting question about when things will get back to normal but the other thing is you know when is all this is going to stop happening you know, it was only less than a month ago that we had a derailment just west of Victor- just west of Geelong in Victoria, um, where a freight train was derailed because the, um, the, the 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 railway line was unstable. You know, how often is this going to keep happening? And this is a question that I've got for the government. You know, you know, where's the where's the investment in stable, reliable infrastructure um, to keep to to keep our country connected? So, what
12: do you think should be done differently the solution is more investment in infrastructure
13: absolutely more investment in infrastructure and also um, more creativity um, when it comes to solving these problems and 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 also not waiting for problems to occur so when the railway line um, across the Nullarbor I think it was that was washed away several months ago because of the um, floods in South Australia um, some really great plans um were implemented to to better use road and you know, existing and unaffected road and rail um, links to keep to keep freight moving Um, i recall even um um onshore maritime transport um was you know licenses were given to to move goods um you know goods like um you know your laundry detergent and your toilet cleaner and um and and these these sort of non-perishable goods that we need all the time um so these this creativity and this you know this idea of using all the different modes of transport that are available um this this is really this was all really really good stuff but unfortunately it takes a long time to get um you know to get in order um and so if these processes can be expedited and you know and really used as normal rather than you know upon an emergency well that's got to be a good thing too
1: Curtin University supply chain expert Dr Elizabeth Jackson speaking to Georgia Hargreaves I've been asking where it is you're listening from online, Mark's listening while he works at the muja Power Station, Phil in Melville is tuned in, he's enjoying the show and the cool breeze and Callum's on the header at Ben Carbon, hello Callum, I hope that crop is coming off nicely. Heading towards the one o'clock news, it's about five minutes away but mining company Mineral Resources is Certainly getting some attention at the moment. It now has plans to redefine FIFO standards with resort style accommodation. The company bl- plans to build a 500 person resort to house FIFO workers for its new $3 billion. Onslow Iron Project. The company hopes it will improve the mental and physical safety of its workers and encourage more women and couples to live on site. Broman Greve is the people and shared services officer for mineral resources and she says while physical accommodation is one element of a cultural
10: shift, it's an important one. This is going to be an industry first. We're looking at investing significant sums at Onslow to change the traditional dongers into 48 square metre studio apartments with their own private alfresco and ensuite, queen size beds with quality sheets and a physical environment also that has many common facilities. So gym and sporting facilities, an Olympic pool, a golf simulator, et cetera. But it's not just about the physical environment, it's also about the wraparound support that we want to create at Onslow. And so what we're going to focus on is ensuring that we've got village activation teams that provide on-site health and wellness professionals, that provide services to people so that when they aren't working, they have the support that they need as they would in a normal community. We're hoping that this strategy will encourage different kinds of people into the mining sector. We're hoping to attract more females, but we're also with our larger uh, accommodation and apartments, we're hoping to attract couples. Do you think mm. accommodation is enough to draw draw
3: people up who already have lives based elsewhere?
10: All FIFO workers have lives based elsewhere and what we are committed to is creating an opportunity for couples to come together to site. Now, it's not just about the physical environment. It also is about finding couples the right jobs, giving them career paths that are stimulating for both partners. Uh, We think with the expansion of opportunities at Mineral Resources at the moment, we can provide those opportunities. We can provide learning and training so that people as couples can come on site.
3: Some research in 2018 found lone- loneliness in these um, environments was a big factor and social situations like barbecues and quiz nights actually did
10: more to improve mental well-being than say a pool and a gym. What, what do you make of that? Oh, Look, we fully support that concept and we're certainly adopting that in our approach for village style accommodation or resort style accommodation. So, you know, when we talk about golf simulators and Olympic pools, it's not just about allowing people to go and use those facilities on their own. There will certainly be a lot of communal activities that are associated with those
3: The inquiry into sexual harassment that was tabled earlier this year, the Enough is Enough report, talked about some of the workplace behaviours within the industry, within the broader industry, talked about these behaviours being abhorrent and systemic in relation to the harassment of women. What do you make of what MINRES is doing here in relation to this broader conversation around the cultural change that's needed within the industry?
10: So we acknowledge that there is a cultural shift that needs to be made. As a consequence of the inquiry, we've taken a lot of effort to understand from our people on site, from our women on site, their concerns. We've done a um, gender safety audit. We've conducted very extensive focus group discussions with women to to work out what needs to change from their perspective. Um, And we have a whole program of activities and initiatives that are destined to making it safer for our women um, on site and that are destined to changing the culture to the extent that we can. And in that context, this resort style accommodation idea um, is central. We think that when you change the composition of a camp, when you introduce more communal activities, uh, and when you introduce an environment that feels like home, we expect that the culture will shift
1: Bronwyn Grieve, who oversees camps and culture at Mineral Resources, speaking to Alice Angeloni. I've been asking where it is you're listening from. We've got a text from a traveller on the highway at Brookton. Thank you for that. Uh, Listening from Carmel in the Perth Hills, working from home, enjoying your show. Thank you. And a text from uh, Phil in Donnybrook. I'm listening to the Country Hour on my phone Thank you for that text. A text from Judy too. She's listening from Wannamore, which is between Bindoon and New Nausea. She's been listening on digital for a while. And thank you for your text too, uh, Alexa and Wendy. And let's do this all again tomorrow. An exclusive digital country hour with me because um, you can't hear today's show anywhere else except streaming and later on the WA Country Hour podcast. And that's because
10: of the cricket. It's one o'clock.